now since I got sober, like having conversations with my mom, she didn't tell me you're kicked out of here. She said, you can stay here and be sober, go out on the streets and get loaded, but you need to make a choice. You're not going to do both. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Okay, everybody, welcome to another episode. Today, I have Pat Ochoa joining me. Pat's a person in long-term recovery, a life coach. You work at a treatment center and a public speaker, so you uh, got a lot going on. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, let's uh, first kind of just, i like to start at the beginning, take me through the story, and uh, we'll fill in the gaps as we go. Yeah, not a problem. So growing up, um, uh, my mom, my mom was a alcoholic. My mom didn't know she was pregnant. So she was, um, she came out of a blackout. Um, and there was a paramedic holding me as an infant in my mom's apartment. And the paramedic told my mom, you need to name, name your son. And, um, she didn't know that she had given birth. Uh, my mom, my mom, um, uh, later did I find out that, uh, recently that my, uh, my mom actually had sex with the owner of the bar she drank at, um, which I didn't find out until last year. Uh, but growing up, um, you know, my mom got sober when I was 11 months old. My mom was being sentenced to prison for 10 years or go to recovery. And so my whole life, I grew up in, a, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous in a 12-step fellowship. And, um, but like growing up as a kid, like I was like, I just was like super awkward and weird um, um, introvert. I mean, I've always had a nervous disposition. Like I still bite my nails 45 years old. You know what I mean? Just like, I've just always had that anxious thing about myself. And, and so my mom, like growing up, um, I probably would have been diagnosed with ADD. I think it's more anxiety, but my mom like tried to put me in sports. You know what I mean? She was like, okay, you're going to play soccer. You're going to play baseball. And I wasn't like the sports kind of kid. Like I'm a right fielder on the baseball team kind of kid. You know what I mean? Like I'm just, I'm like, it's like, uh, you know, your mom paid for it. So why don't you go out there where the balls never hit, you know? Right. <laughs> and I'm like wandering around the field, you know, like what the heck's going on? Um, so just awkward, weird, never really. Um, I mean, I peed the bed till I was 10. So it's just like my, my like friends were tough. Uh, people were tough. Um, I remember looking out my window in my, my, mom, my mom's bedroom of her apartment, and I would just wonder if my dad was ever going to come home. Like, I always just had, like, this inside um, – I just, like, had this belief that I, I wasn't lovable as a kid. Like, my dad – I didn't know that my mom got pregnant black. I didn't know any of that stuff. But my perception was, was that I wasn't loved. And, um, you know, growing up in 12-step fellowship, like, I knew what alcoholism did. I knew what – drug addiction did. I watched a woman die of this disease on my mom's couch. I knew what recovery was. I was never going to drink. I was never going to do drugs. And at nine years old, like some older kids had a bottle of tequila and it went around to me. And like literally an hour before you'd ask me if I, if I would drink or do drugs, I'd tell you no. But when that bottle got to me, like the only reason I even attempted to drink it was for those kids to like me. And I, it was gross. I spit it out. And the second time I was excited about having another, another chance for some friends. And I held that tequila down at nine years old. And, um, 
like it just took all that fear and awkwardness. Like I felt like I connected in that moment. I felt like I was a part of like the older kids always told me I had an old soul. You know what I mean? I was like old soul, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Rocket. You know, know? these things. Yeah. It's, it's so weird because we don't start it because we like it. We don't even know any better. You know, we want acceptance and then eventually something else clicks. Yeah. That becomes a, a bigger issue. Did your mom stay sober from the time yeah, 11 months on? Yeah. So my mom died uh, nice. January 10th with 44 years sober. Wow. Yeah. Sorry for your loss. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, so middle school, you know, what, once you oh. get into adolescence, when everybody's mean to each other, how, how, how'd that go down? Uh, middle school, like it was, uh, uh, seventh grade, uh, somebody told me like they, I had some older friends and I was, I, I don't know if I was bullied. I was more internally bullying myself than anything. Um, but they, uh, had a friend of mine that said, when you get bullied, just punch the biggest kid in the, in the school. And so this kid, he came up to me and he was picking on me. And I remember my friend telling me that, and I just cocked back and punched this eighth grade kid so hard right in the mouth. And he didn't even move. He was just like, I kind of twitched a little bit and he looked at me and started laughing and then just started to beat the crap out of me. And, um, really? yeah. And I remember just getting beat the crap out of, and, um, and the next day, all of a sudden he was like, he, that guy just, the eighth reader just brought me in. He's like, this is the craziest kid I've ever met. You know what I mean? And then all, I was like, like never got picked on. He always like protected me. Um, I, I don't want to say like I became cool, but like all of a sudden, like I just like respect respected. Yeah. That's a perfect word. Respected. So there is some truth to that old jailhouse mentality of, you know, knock yeah. a dude out day one and, and things, things may change, yeah. but that's funny. Um, so did the drugs and alcohol, did, did, did it continue and linger and same stuff? I would say at 11 years old, I took my first hit of weed. The same thing happened for me. Like, I connected to a group of friends, uh, a different group of friends, but it really didn't really start until I was a, a freshman in high school. My mom, uh, my mom was a lesbian, though I knew, but I, I didn't know. Like my mom never had a conversation with me, even up to the day she died about it. She always like kind of avoided it. And so like, I remember waking up when I was a kid, like, I don't know, 11, and I would hear them having sex in the other room. And I didn't know what sex was at the time. Maybe I was like 10 and I would start to cry to get him to stop. So like I knew, but I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't, couldn't put the pieces together and I wanted a dad and I wanted a normal family. And so I moved to Grass Valley, California with a friend and his parents that moved there for a normal family. And my grades for the first time I had straight A's, but we smoked weed every day. And, um, but when I came back to Southern California, my mom had moved in with a woman. And so I lived, they shared a bedroom and I had a bedroom and that's really when my alcohol, so my sophomore year alcohol was like every weekend smoking weed every day, starting to take psychedelics, um, you know, taking acid at class, watching the teacher melt, you know what I mean? Um, you know, those kind of things. By the time I was uh, 16, I was dating a girl. Um, and where it's recreationally doing cocaine, I was selling cocaine for a Hispanic gang down here. Um, but it was more, uh, 
but this girlfriend I had, she was doing speed. And I was like, meth is bad. Like you shouldn't do meth. Meth is bad. Even though I'm getting loaded every day. And, and, and so we were in a fight and she was like, well, why don't you just try some? And I was like, all right, you know, and snorted it just like that, you know, um, one more time for like approval and acceptance, um, for that, that need of wanting to be loved. Um, and I remember sm- uh, snorting that speed that day and just talking like, I don't know, for like 20 something hours, you know, um, like, uh, I was kicked out of the house when I was 17 years old. So when you, what age did you say you left for a while? At 17. Okay. So that's when you left and came back? Oh no. When I left and came back, that was my freshman year. So that was like 14 years old. Okay. So talk about, talk about that a little bit. Did you just, did you just say I'm running away or I'm leaving? No, No, my friend, my best friend growing up, he moved to Grass Valley with him and his family. And so they were, they were like a, a mother, father, two sons to me it seemed like a normal family and that's what I, I wanted just some normal normal normalcy in my life and so I moved it up there with them um, his parents were really strict I mean we'd go to school we came home we did our homework um, and then we could go out and ride motorcycles or do whatever we did so I ended up getting straight A's that year um, but I missed my mom like I missed my family so I ended up coming back at the end of the year okay got it yeah. So did the meth kickstart the ferocity of everything? Just the, uh, I wouldn't say it kicked off everything at that point. Like, um, I mean, I was drinking every weekend, smoking weed every day by then. Um, right. did it kickstart it? I wouldn't say it kickstarted it. I was already like in party mode. And maybe that was the wrong way to put it, but I mean, take it to another level. I mean, that, that's, that stuff's intense, you know, it, like, I think it would have for days. Yeah. I think what it did was it, it is it connected me with, with just a different group of people. Um, I don't want to say shadier people. I don't want to just a different level of, of use, right. The, the progression of their use had been extreme. And so my progression of my use was coming to an extreme. Um, uh, but at 17, when my mom found a bag of weed in her house, mom was like, hey, you can't be here and do drugs. Like my mom was sober 16 years at the time, active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, she was working in treatment. You know, my mom died working in treatment for 38 years. Um, and, but I didn't hear that I had to stop. I heard I need to hide it better. You know what I mean? Like stopping wasn't an option at that point in my life. Like living at home or getting loaded, like getting loaded was more important than, than living at home already then. And I would say I was primarily drinking and smoking weed. And when, when I came home one night at blacking out already at 17 years old, I was coming out of a blackout and my mom was standing there with a bag of weed and she's like, you're out of here. And I went, and I went to my bedroom and I packed my backpack and I left and, um, like I remember like looking at my mom and like her heart was broke. Like, and I had so much shame and guilt at 17. And the only way I knew how to deal with that shame and guilt was anger. Like I couldn't go to the hurt. I couldn't go to like crying, even though I wanted to, like I just grabbed my mom by the collar and I slammed her against the wall three times, you know, just cursing at her. F you, I hate you. You're never going to see me again. And, um, that night I went to an abandoned house where we partied at and I took my first hit of crack cocaine at 17. Um, 
And like now, since I got sober, like having conversations with my mom, she didn't tell me you're kicked out of here. She said, you can stay here and be sober, go out on the streets and get loaded, but you need to make a choice. You're not going to do both. And alcohol and drugs told me that I was kicked out of the house. Like alcohol and drugs were already making decisions in my life, though I couldn't see it at the time. So while, so you leave and are you in, are you in school? No. Okay. I, my, my you're, last, you're selling yeah. drugs, you were selling drugs for a gang. Now, how yeah. did that, how did that go down when you, when your use picked up? I mean, become a liability or how did, how did that work? Well, at that, at that point I was, I was selling drugs to do cocaine. So the, the drugs that I was selling was what I was doing. Um, I was also, you know, selling LSD. Um, so I was able at that point really to be able to provide for my habit. Um, I lived on the street, so it was really doing drugs, going to raves. Um, I lived in my van, um, going to Grateful Dead shows. It was just a way of life at that point. It didn't really start to get bad until I was 25 years old. Um, I was able to manage and at least to be able to continue my habit. Now, mom was also wiring me money once a week. Um, I started to steal. I started to rob. I started to do those things in order to provide for my habit. By the time I was 25, I was on Skid Row downtown LA. Yeah, I was, uh, my mom had put me in the YMCA when I was a kid. I became a camp counselor. I became a director. I was assistant director of an of a after-school program for the YMCA, and I was a full-blown heroin addict. And I would have the heroin dealer drop heroin off at the elementary school. And that's how I ended up getting fired. Um, that was the reason why I got fired. That's not what was written down on paper, but that was the reason why. And I showed up to a camp in Catalina and, um, and the director was like, we know exactly what you're doing. Get on the boat and get out of here. We don't want you here. And it was like the only thing in my life left that was of any value, right? Like, I had a sense of purpose. Um, you know, that's where I was taught morals and values. I was guided to some sort of uh, spiritual connectedness. And when he told me that at 25, like my, my heart broke. Like I was like out of hope. Um, and I called my mom. I said, I need to go to treatment. And I went to, ended up going to Betty Ford. And, but I, drugs were the problem. Alcohol was, and I started drinking. And then I was back on the drugs. And then the last two years on Skid Row, downtown LA. So, okay. So you went to treatment and then 28 days, Betty Ford, and then came back out and started drinking. Yeah I, went to, yeah. I fell in love with a girl in treatment and, uh, we never had a conversation. We, we wrote notes the whole time, but we both decided that we wanted to go to Hawaii. So we went to Hawaii to go to sober living and, uh, I drank on the plane and never made it to sober living. So did you just chill out in Hawaii for a while? Yeah, I went straight to the bar and a guy offered me ice and I snorted some ice. Um, and then I lived in Hawaii homeless for two and a half months. Um, and then manipulated my mom to come back and was downtown LA on Skid Row. Now, was your, was your mom fully aware of what was going on or did, what, did you have her wrapped around your finger? Mentally? Uh, she, knew it, she knew what was going on, but would rationalize and justify my, my use. Um, you know, she would call me and tell me that I need to go to some sort of 12 step fellowship. And so I would go to get the money, you know, and then, um, you know, I, she would say, you know, she'd gone to, started to go to Al-Anon. So 
the language changed, right? Like, uh, mom, I need money. And she would say, no, you know, I was like, no, I was like, but if you wouldn't have kicked me out of the house, I wouldn't be in this situation. And so I'd hit her guilt button and she'd wire me the money or, you know, finally had a dad that wouldn't happen. And I wouldn't be in this situation. Uh, yeah, I love you out there. I love you so much. You're my favorite mom. You're my hero. Um, you know, the, the, just so she was just wrapped around my finger, um, knowing that the money was going to drugs. But I always had a different story. Oh, I need money for clothes. I'm going to get a job. That was a, that was one. You know. Um, so how would you at this point? How would you spend your days? Were, were you still? Did you still have a job dealing, or were you just no. out running and gunning? Uh, at this point of my story, um, I'm a straight man, but I'd walk into a gay bar in West Hollywood and flirt with enough men to get enough alcohol and drugs in my body and hope that I would make it out before I blacked out. I was uh, physically and sexually assaulted 12 times by the time I got sober. Um, and uh, I was 98 pounds. I hadn't showered in six months. Um, I had two shoes, only one had a sole. I, I, I stood in the corner of six in Los Angeles, downtown LA. I thought I was an antenna communicating with the aliens. Um, I had picked up on this, this, uh, uh, I, I, I would run up to that. I, I figured that if I ran up to the craziest people on the streets and act crazier than they were, they would leave me alone. Just kind of like when I was in seventh grade when I punched that kid. And so I'd run up to these just gangsters, thugs, and I would just be like, do you know where my friend Chris is? I'm looking for Chris. Have you seen Chris? And I would just Chris, 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 Chris. And then they would be like, dude, go, like, just go. And then I could like get by him, you know? And so I was just crazy, you know, I was absolutely, absolutely Looney Tunes. Um, yeah, so no, there was no, there was no robbing. I couldn't panhandle money. Um, and I was prostituting myself for one more hit of crack cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, whatever I could get. Really, those were the three main. And so your mind's gone. What, how did things continue to unfold? Um, it just got it just got darker and darker. Like I, I, for me, like I would come to sexually assaulted, broken, and I'd have that shame and that guilt and, um, and that self-hatred and that loneliness. And, and I knew that if I could get to the liquor store to get a pint of tequila, like all I could, like all that would go away. Like I could, I could just forget about it. It's a new day. I'll start over. Yeah. Yeah, Just like wash up. I'm done. This is it. And then, I'd get the pint of tequila and it would, and I could just like, Oh man. All right. That's what you're going to do. We're going to get a job. We're going to get it together. And then within like sometimes an hour, sometimes three hours, sometimes three days, eventually I'd be knocking back at that motel where those dudes that have sexually assaulted me were uh, before knocking on the door, seeing if I could get more dope. And then I would come to maybe a month, maybe a day, two days, in and out of jail, whenever it was. And, and I would, this time it's going to be different. You know what I mean? Just don't do crack. Don't do heroin. Don't do meth. You can smoke weed. You could um, smoke weed or drink, but just don't do the hard drugs. And, and every time I do like weed and alcohol, eventually I do the hard drugs. And it was just a cycle that I couldn't get out of. And uh, I was in a motel. I was trying to get in the Salvation Army. I was, uh, and I knew, I came to on October 23rd, 2002, knowing what I did the night before in order to get what I need to get. And uh, the same feelings of shame and guilt. And usually that thought of that tequila was replaced with call your mom and ask for help. 
and I went and called my mom and, and she was like, I can't help anymore. I'll send someone to come get you. Um, if I come and get you, I'll, I'll end up killing you. And these two guys from recovery came and, and they took me to a detox and they, they told me their story is what they did, which ch really changed my life. They didn't lecture me. They just told me their story. And though I didn't relate to the story, I knew that, that, that guy, he talked about drinking and snorting cocaine and ending up doing things that he didn't want to do that caused shame and guilt. And I knew that he drank and used drugs like I did. And something shifted in me. Right. And what age were you then? I was uh, 27 when I got sober. 27. Now, were you get, when you were out and about, were you getting periodically thrown in jail and like yeah. arrested and things like that? Yeah. So I don't like around 21, I got a DUI. And then um, around 25, no, to about 23, I got arrested with possession of heroin. So then I was looking at three and a half years in prison. At that point, I told him I was an addict and I needed help. And he ordered me to the Salvation Army program. It was a nine-month program. But I, I, every time I got out of jail, I went and drank and then did drugs. and ended up back in jail on a warrant. And then I went. So the whole time I was in and out of jail, you know, 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, six months on a new, on a new methamphetamine charge, um, all pet, you know, just drug, drug uh, offenses. Um, and then promising, like, I'm never going to drink or do drugs again while I'm in jail. You know, promising my mom, you know, the 12-step the, the fellowships would come. I would go to church, like, trying to find a way out. Um, but I didn't know what my problem was. I thought that drugs and alcohol were my problem. And if I just put those down, my life would get better. And every time I put them down, the thoughts got darker, the thoughts got scarier, um, the emotions got heavier. Um, that nervousness just kind of intensified until I either punched something or got loaded. Um, but it, that, that nervousness would turn to anger and I would break. Like I would snap. Yeah. Already being completely wiped out mentally, you know, that's, yeah. I can imagine. Okay. So you go to those guys, pick you up. You had a conversation with them. Your recovery sobriety starts. Was it in a treatment center? No, I got sober at a, at a detox. It was a, a nonprofit, uh, 10-day free detox house called Charlie Street in Costa Mesa. Um, and it's just guys from 12-Step Fellowship that came and, and, and talked about 12-Step Fellowship and going to meetings. No, no, no medical, non-medical? No medical. They told me, ride the cot. For 23 days, I shook and I withdrew mm. for, for 23 days. I didn't sleep. Um, I just shook, uh, oh gosh, uh, went to the bathroom in my bed, both ends, you know, like, um, uh, yeah, no, no suboxone, no, no, uh, gabapentin, no cute therapist to talk about my feelings. Just good, good old boys from recovery that said, sit the F down and shut your F in mouth, you know, like just, yeah, grind it out. There's a broom, go sweep the, you know, go sweep, you know? So did things start to start to click as you became healthy and was it a one-time thing or did you go back out? No, when, when I called my mom and asked for help, like, I mean, I, I believe that now I didn't believe in the idea of, of God or anything like that until I was 10 years sober. Um, I believe that those dudes knew a way out. And so 
you know, through the 12 steps and being of service. Um, like they told me, like, you know, I did a lot of service work. I went through the 12 steps. Um, I believe that I had a, a spiritual experience that day when I asked my mom for help looking back. Um, I have, um, that was it, man. That, I, that the obsession to drink and use was removed. Um, the obsession was, now the thinking of self-hatred and all that has been a long process of, of, of learning how to love myself. Um, really the longest journey I have gone from is from my head to my heart, from yeah. judgment to compassion. And this is strictly just grinding it out with these guys and, and, and helping other people versus, you know, 28 day with psychiatrists. I mean, you mentioned all that stuff. It's kind of, you just kind of did it on your own and, and listened and showed up. And yeah, so I didn't yeah. see, I didn't start seeing a therapist until really um, May of last year after my mom died. Um, the grief of my mom dying um, drove me to therapy. Um, now, could I have used therapy a long time ago? Probably, right? Because, you know, therapy for me has been an experience of relationships. You know, I've had a hard time with relationships my whole sobriety, right? It's that tariff, that, that little boy who sat outside the window wondering if his dad was ever going to come home who wasn't lovable, carried that through his whole life and carried that into recovery. Um, though I wasn't drinking and I wasn't using drugs and I was of service and I was helping you and I was... I was walking from a selfless human being into a, a, a into a selfless human being. Um, I still had that, you know, that that uh, that love me stay over there, love me stay over there syndrome going on, and uh, you know, and my my relationships weren't healthy, right? Because I wanted to be loved so bad, but yet wouldn't let you in to love me. Um, and so when when you're when you're uh, living with that uh, that pattern. Um, I would get into a relationship with someone who I absolutely loved and adored, but I would push him away. Right. Or I would, for me, I would, um, I've cheated on women in recovery, um, um, to the point where like they, I would cheat on them and then I would feel so shameful and guilty. Or when I would just push them away, I would feel shameful and guilty and I'd still be all alone and I would want to kill myself. And at eight and a half years of sobriety, because of one more broken relationship, I was going to kill myself. And I was driving my car 100 miles an hour down the road, about to barrel my car into oncoming traffic. Um, now, I was sponsoring 20 guys. I was on three service committees. I had commitments at every meeting. But yet my behavior was still that way. And I couldn't tell anyone. Right? I couldn't tell anyone that this is how I'm living outside of the rooms because I had sobriety time. Right? I was looked up to. and. Um, and so I'm driving my car hundred miles down the, down the road. And I heard a voice in the back seat that said, Hey, call that guy who's always talking on your Tuesday night meeting. And, and I called him and, and he talked about untreated alcoholism. And, um, and I knew that he knew what I was dealing with. And so, um, the, the truth was, was that I didn't make amends to my father, right? Like I didn't have a part in the relationship with my dad. Right. My mom got pregnant in a blackout. Like I didn't have a part in that. But where had I been selfish, self-seeking, every area? Like if I only had a dad, I'd know how to be a friend to you. If I only had a dad, I'd know how to be a boyfriend to that girlfriend. If I only had a dad to teach me how to go to work. If I only had a dad to teach me how to save money. If I only, if I, and so I, when I made amends to a man that wasn't there, he died 10 years ago, but he wasn't there. It was like on my floor. Um, the, the victim inside of me was pulled right out and the power of, of God, whatever that is, went deep down. And, um, 
and, and things changed, right? Like growing up to be, a, to be a man's been a process of letting go of a lot of old ideas. Um, uh, but since that time when I was going to kill myself and ask that guy for help, I haven't had to act out in that way. That was eight and a half years. The power, I mean, the power of God, whatever, whatever that is for the individual was pulled, right? I mean, it was just ripped right out of me. Um, and I started to change. So in, in, in the past well, seven and a half years, from that point until you started going to therapy, did you just, again, work through it yourself in whatever way you knew how? Right. Which so the was silence, the, I guess. Well, no, because the fear, right? The fear says you're not, you're, um, I'm, I'm afraid of being hurt. Really, the fear for me breaks down all the way down to I'm afraid of being alone. Well, really, the underlying fear of that is that I'm afraid to die alone. And the underlying fear to that is that I'm really afraid there is no God. So what's changed for me is my, is my, is my daily meditation of, of what would God want me to be outside of this fear wants me to be loving, kind, considerate, show up, right? Show up, be my authentic self, share my true emotions and my feelings. And, and it's been a spiritual shift for me that's occurred. Um, the, the malady of a discontent, of, of a disconnect, right, has been more about connecting spiritually. When I'm, when I'm aligned spiritually, then I'm aligned, then I'm connected and I'm aligned with you. And when I'm aligned with, 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 with spirit and I'm aligned with you, then I'm okay with myself internally. And, um, and so it's been, um, and then once I've participated in relationships in a healthy way, spiritually, what's happened is I start to have self-esteem and I start to have confidence within relationships. Um, and I start to be whole, um, in myself. Um, a lot of the therapy stuff is, is really about getting down to, is getting down to, uh, the, the shit, the, the things that have occurred, like really wanting, like when I was born, I sat in a plastic carrier until I was 11 months old in a smoke-filled bar uh, with a mom who was not physically touching, emotionally loving, consoling. Like, I didn't have any of that, you know? And so it's been a continual change in perception that, that whatever I'm experiencing in the now within a relationship, even with, with friends, even the same way, um, is my perspective is wrong. Like, that isn't who I am based upon my past. Like, for example, I'll give you a perfect example. What happened the other day, 17 years sober. Quarantine. It's goofy, right? It's like, oh, my God. Like, and I go five days on with my son. I have him for two days, and I don't have him for five, and then I have him for two. And we have an amazing relationship, me and my son. But five days without him, right? No human contact, right, because I'm at home by myself. Now, this is different. We talk, but no physical human contact. I start to you know, internally, like everything's all right. But all of a sudden, like come Friday, I'm like so excited he's coming. Right. I love my kid. Of course I'm excited, but I'm overly excited. Friday we connect Saturday. He tells me he wants to go to his mom's for five hours. My feeling was hurt. Right. Before quarantine, I'd be all supportive, loving, go to mom's because he wants to ride a scooter. They have a half pipe. But Saturday, this was last Saturday, I feel that disconnect and instantly I go to push everyone away, everyone that loves you, get rid of them because I don't want to be that little boy who's hurt, right? And so I, I drop him off. It's quiet. We don't talk, right? I'm like throwing a 45-year-old temper tantrum. Like I'm afraid to be hurt. 
and I drop him off and I want to send his mom and him a group text saying, you know what? I'm done being a dad. Just keep him forever. Like I'm over it. Right. Cause I don't want to be hurt. Right. And so I drop him off. I come home the next morning at prayer meditation. I'm like, damn, I owe him an apology. Like it's an unhealthy dependence to have on him to make me feel whole. Like that's not his responsibility. He's a 13 year old kid, you know? And through meditation, I get to that point. I sit down, I make a, I make an amends to him. I tell him, hey, dude, this is what happened. Like, I had an expectation. I, dude, I love you. I want you a scooter. And he goes, dad, it's all good. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we all, we all feel, we all are afraid. We all feel alone. He's like, thank you for telling me the truth and connecting with me. Like, I love you. You know, and I talked to my therapist. My, ther- my therapist is like, yeah, you're right on track. You know, I'm like, all right, why am I paying you? But I love her. She's amazing. Right. So I yeah, that's really cool because it's hard to, uh, it's hard to go through moments like that. I mean, yeah. cause I'm, you know, I'm 42 and I have tenor temper tantrum and, and woe is me parties all the time. But, uh, that's when recovery is working is when you can work through it and use the skills that you've learned to, you know, rationalize properly what's really going on because right. that's, is your son uh, fully on the journey, fully aware of recovery and, and the things that you've been through as much as a 13 year old can handle. But you know what? It's, 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 uh, yeah. So he's grown me growing up in the program. Like, um, I always was in my mom's shadow. Um, like I have a picture of my mom. She's at the podium. Like my mom spoke all over the country for years and years. And like my mom was always gone doing, you know, 12 step stuff. And there's a picture of my mom on the podium and I'm on, I'm on the, on the, like the, the ground sleeping. You know what I mean? Like I was always like in my mom's shadow. So I never want, I don't, I didn't want to bring him, like he doesn't go to, to meetings or anything with me, but when I go speak and I, and he's with me, then um, he'll come with me. So he's heard my story. Um, he, he puts his headphones on now. Um, it, it can, it gets a little emotional for him. Um, to hear, but he knows like, you know, guys that I mentor that, you know, he'll be like, dad, he's lying. You know what I mean? Cause he's just on, he's like, he's like, he's manipulating. He's, you know, he's intuitive. Um, he's smart. Um, you know, I think that's a direct result of the principles, um, that we learn. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's great. You know, sexual abuse and physical abuse is such a huge part of this for a lot of people. Have you gone to work on that or, or have you worked through that with your therapist or yourself? Or is that something that you kind of just, how, how do you handle that? So I think a lot of that trauma, right. Was, was, was an addition to the broken relationships the love me, stay over there. Love me, stay over there. Um, that I felt, um, I can tell you that like that guy that picked me up, like a changing point for me, like I never trusted men. Um, I pushed men away my whole life. Um, that day when he picked me up, he said, I'm going to give you two directions. And he gave me a book to read. He said, I want you to read this book. And he said, the second thing I want you to do is I want you to take a shower. And I hadn't showered in six months. And I honestly didn't. I was like, how did he know? You know, like, I mean, it probably smelled pretty bad. But like, and I went, I went and read that book and I didn't understand it. It was written in 1939. I didn't understand it. You know what I mean? I was like, this is whatever. But I, I took the, that action. And I went to the shower to turn the water on. I fell down on the ground. I started to cry. And I was just broken. I was on the floor. 
and it felt like hours and days I was there. But that guy came in that shower that day into that bathroom and he got down on the floor that detox with me. And he fucking wrapped his arms around me and he held me and he rubbed my shoulder. He said, and he just like was like petting me and he was like, kid, it's going to be all right, kid. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. You know? And I remember something inside of me shifted, man. I remember looking at him and, uh, and he looked right into my soul and the guy, he looked at me and said, I love you, kid. It's going to be all right, kid. And he said, I want you to stand up. And I stood up and I, something, I mean, I, I know it was like a pet, like it was spiritual in nature, but he said, take off your shirt. I took off my shirt. I walked it. He held onto me, walked me in the shower and the guy took a washcloth and a bar of soap and the man scrubbed my back, you know? And I had never felt love in my entire life until that moment. I was 27 years old. And like that power of, of what happens in 12-step community of for fun and for free, right? That unconditional love over time continually penetrated the ego, which is the defense, right? For me to go into the in spiritual work, right? Because for me, it's been a spiritual healing of me learning how to trust another human being. Um, and it's been a long process. Now, getting to the point of therapy, right? It's going back to the brokenness when I was a child <laughs> and then working all the way through the relationships. Um, but I believe the healing starts spiritually for me. Therapeutically, it's been a process of me learning a new perspective to my thinking. If that makes, that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's... Amazing. Okay. So, uh, I'm interested to know about the, the relationship with your mom once you got sober. I mean, how were those 15, 16 years? Oh man. So mom, mom did a great job of like staying out of my 12 step work program. Like she did an amazing job, but my mom, so, okay. So I had my, I didn't have my son. I, my, my son's mom had my son when, when you know, I was, uh, He's 13. I'm 17. So I was like four years sober and we split up when, when he was two. So the last 11 years I've been, you know, we've done it 50, 50 every Monday night, me and my mom and my son would have dinner and, and we go to the same home group on Wednesday. Um, we spoke all over the country together. We healed. I had to pay my mom $25 a week and write a note, mom, I love you and I appreciate you today every week, every Friday. And then over a couple of years, like that, that once a week note turned into a note every day about how much I loved her. And then texts came and, and I started to have like a love for my mom. That was like, we were healing at five years sober. She no longer wanted the money, but she still wanted the notes. And every Monday night I'd have dinner and I still bite my nails and my mom would bark at me, stop chewing your nails. And she would like snap and she would like, not snap, but she would get annoyed just like when I was a kid. And what happened was I was continuing to be triggered that I wasn't a good enough kid, just like I was when I was a little kid, I wasn't good enough. And so my mom, the last three years of my mom's life, she had oxygen. She died of COPD is what she died from. So the last three years, over life shit oxygen. And one night I was like, I just was over. I'm like, I, I drove 
an hour in traffic to get my kid, an hour in traffic to come back and rush hour traffic, to have dinner for 45 minutes, to drive an hour back, to get yelled at and to get barked at. And I'm 40 years old, like, screw this, I'm over it. And I was talking to a friend of mine in the fellowship and she said, you're going to have to teach your mom how to love you. Now I'm 40 thinking, isn't it my mom's job to teach me how to love? And I'm resorting back to the eight-year-old, right? And so I said, okay, I don't know, I don't know how to do that. How, how am I going to teach her how to love me? Because I didn't know how to love me. And so my mom was like hugging a cactus. Like she just was like, she, my mom was thrown through a plate glass window by her father, alcoholic father. He was mentally and emotionally abusive. Like my mom did, did not know how to love another human being. Now I learned this later, but so I would grab my mom and I would kiss on her and I'd love on her cause that's how I am. Right. And I started to learn how to love myself through the process. And we were in Nashville Tennessee and my mom was on oxygen and she couldn't breathe. And I'm like, mom, get in the wheelchair. I'll push you. And she's like, nah, I'm not getting in the goddamn wheelchair. I said, just get in the wheelchair. It's going to be easier. Right. And she, that pride is going to kill her. And I, mean, I looked at that day, I looked at my mom and I said, and I don't know where the words came from, but I said, mom, when are you going to let me, when are you going to let me love you? And my mom sat in the wheelchair. And our relationship shifted, dude. Like right in that moment, it shifted. And I didn't know it shifted till later. And I'm pushing my mom. And I'm like, I'm like a little kid. I'm like a 45-year-old child. You know what I mean? I like, love to have fun. I like to pull shenanigans. And I thought all of a sudden there was like the airport. It started going downhill. And I thought, oh, start running. So I start running. And my mom's yelling at me, stop, stop, stop. And I like jump and I have no feet. And we're like, in the wheelchair. My mom's yelling at me and we get to the bottom and we started to laugh and and we started to laugh so hard together and we got to the hotel we we're going to speak the next night we got to that hotel and i woke up in the morning and my mom i turned the water on in the shower and all this red water started coming out of the shower head and my mom had snuck in there and put a dye tablet in the shower head and i came out of the bathroom that day and she was like flipping me off and she was like got you back you know and what happened was our relationship went to this innocent childlike relationship. And for the last, you know, two, three years, it was, it was like childlike. And the last five weeks of my mom's life, she was on hospice. Now, when I made amends to my mom, I asked her what I could do to make it right. And she said, all I want you to do is get in the middle of recovery and help as many people as you can. That's all I care. That's all I want you to do in life. And my mom was on hospice. And I was going to Seattle to go speak. And I was going to be gone for five days. And I knew my mom was going to die. And I was afraid that my mom was going to die those five days when I was gone. And, um, and so I'm praying. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't, like, and the message came to go be a service to recovery. And I don't like that message. Like, so I pray again. And I get the same message. And I don't like it. And so I went and I kissed my mom on the head. I said, I'll be back. And I left. And I went to go to Idaho, Seattle, and then Idaho to be a service. Day three, I get a call. You need to hurry up and get back. Your mom hasn't responded. She hasn't moved. You know, they told me she's waiting for you to say goodbye to you. And so I prayed. I'm like, I don't, and the same message was be a service. Fly home on your fifth day. So the fifth day I fly home, boom, I land. My mom hadn't 
moved. She hasn't communicated with anybody. And right when I walked in the door, my mom sat straight up and she put her arms out like leaning forward. And I went in and my mom put her arms around me and she pulled me in as like, she didn't not hard, but it was a little tug. I could feel her tug. And she said, Pat, I want you to know you did the right thing. And she held me and she said, I love you. I love you. I love you. And what happened in that moment was there was a level of forgiveness that I could have never mustered on my own. Because all the way up until the day my mom died, I did exactly what my mom wanted me to do, and that was to help people in recovery. And um, like we were good, we were right, you know what I mean. And um, and uh, and when my mom died, my heart broke, man. Like it was like for the last five weeks of my mom's life was the closest we had ever been when she was on hospice. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's the stuff with my mom. What a ble- what a blessing you got there, though, you know. I mean, yeah. that's, it's a, that's a, that's a true life journey there. Yeah. Now I got to ask, did she ever make amends to you for, you know, putting you in that, in that plastic seat in the middle of a bar when you were 10 months old? I mean, did, did no. she ever give you any of that? No, she never made amends to me. Um, which is, you know, for a long time I was like, she never made amends to me. Right. But it wasn't about, it, it was about me forgiving my mom right? Like it was about, it was about the forgiveness of my mom. It was about me learning about my mom's life. It was about like, I remember this is going to go into my dad's stuff, but, um, I was about seven years. I don't know. That's, I don't know exactly how long, how, how long I was sober, but I was in Oregon and I had found out some information from my aunts that my dad was this guy. And they're like, we know because your mom dated this guy around the time. And so I was going to confront my mom and this guy that I speak with, he said to me, he said, Patty, that sounds like a selfish thing. He said, don't you think that when your mom is ready to have a conversation with you, she'll have it. And he said, is this about you or is this about your mom? And I said, this is about her. And he said, I would let it go and let, and let God move it the way it's supposed to move." So I let it go. The Christmas before my mom, like, so she died January 10th. So December of 09, so December of 08, I get Ancestry DNA for Christmas. And that's my mom's way of saying, let's go on this journey together. Now, I'd have missed the miracle if I'd have confronted her. If I'd have confronted her and pissed her off, I'd have missed the miracle of what God wants in my life. And so I took the Ancestry DNA and I had this expectation that I'm going to meet my dad. The Ancestry DNA results come back. No dad. Now I throw a temper tantrum because my expectation isn't met. I forget this ancestry DNA. No, I did have a first cousin on there, but I don't, I don't care. I want to find my dad. So I let it go for a year. Right before my mom dies, I get a message. Hey, you're my first cousin. Uh, I said, okay, well, my mom got pregnant in a blackout. Never know who my dad is. And so I go talk to my mom. And because and, the, the girl goes, well, we're going to help you find your dad. So I go, okay. So I go talk to my mom. Now, this is about seven weeks before my mom dies, right before she goes on hospice. She goes, well, what's the last name of, of the family? I said, well, uh, the lady who reached out, her last name is Sandoval. This fast, my mom goes, your dad's name is Sandy Sandoval. He was the owner of the bar I used to work at. And I was like, whoa. Two days later, my mom gives me a picture of this guy, Sandy, who's my dad, holding me as an infant underneath 
the keg tap of the bar. When I was a little kid, I used to look through the family photo albums and I would always stare at that picture when I was a little kid and had no idea that was me and my dad. So my mom goes on hospice. The lady calls me back and she goes, my mom just took the ancestry DNA. You have six brothers and sisters. So I go from an oh. only child, only a mom, to finding out that on well, my dad, I found out that he died, but I found out that I had six brothers and sisters. So I went from an only child having six brothers and sisters, and they live 50 miles from me. They live in all, San, of, them. all of them. So they live in San Diego. So then huh. my mom dies. I go into grief. I kind of put it to the back burner. I'm, I'm in therapy. I'm ready to reach out to them. And then their mom dies. So they've been on hold. But like, all of a sudden, I get a, I get a cousin hits me up on Instagram. You're my cousin. This other cousin. Hey, you're my cousin. This other, you're my cousin. And then they start sending me pictures of my dad. And then like all of a sudden I get a call. Hey, I'm your aunt. My dad's sister. And then another dad's sister all in like the last, like uh, there's a family reunion in June that I'm going to. Like, Are you, are you going to meet your siblings for the first time? I'm going to meet my cousins and my dad's brothers and sisters. And okay. then I'm waiting to go meet my siblings, but they're just not ready to, for that, for that yet. Got it. Wow. So you, you speak, um, is this, um, talk about your speaking, uh, for a couple minutes. Is it, is it, uh, 12 step stuff or is it just both, uh, both. inspirational? So, okay. Yeah. So both we'll do, uh, you know, the, the 12 step stuff that's, that's separate from, I do a lot of like, um, uh, let's see, like, you know, high schools, junior highs, uh, mostly high schools, some junior highs. I mean, they're starting to see, you know, where there's a, a addiction. A lot of my story really doesn't have much to do with drugs and alcohol. It's mostly about growing up awkward, weird, dysfunction in the home. I and mean, you heard me talk today. I don't talk much about the drug, the, the addiction component. Um, so there's the relatable stuff. Um, and then me and my mom used to do a lot of family programs and treatments all over the country. Um, you know, story of hope, you know? Um, so professionally high school, junior high and programs cross country. Yeah. And then your coaching, is that a, a, a certain demographic, adolescents, adults, uh, everything? Yeah. So I've worked primarily with adolescents uh, since I was about a year sober. It all started with the, I, I've always helped a lot of young guys in 12 step. And this guy said, Hey, I want you to hang out with my kids at my, at my outpatient. And so I did. And then I realized I was just teaching them the same thing I did in 12 steps. So I went to school to be a counselor. And then I worked at a sober high school and I worked for a residential program. And then I started my own transitional living, uh, sober living outpatient for adults, that partnership separated. Um, and then I went into just case management and coaching adolescents and families. Um, so, and, and young adults, um, but right now it's a lot of families, which is huge because it's a family yeah. disease. I mean, it's Absolutely. a family issue. No Absolutely. Doubt. Well, that's great. Absolutely. Well, Pat, man, thanks for uh, spending some time. This has been fabulous. And I, uh, I wish you well, and, uh, I know you'll carry your mother's message. Yeah, man. I appreciate the time. It was awesome connecting with you. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. 
Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.